This poem is called The Sierra, A History. Not long after lightning has rushed down the electric staircase of its own making, not long after fires five stories tall have swept up canyon, a new season the size of pearls begins. Silences spread like hands to touch the heads of seedlings and head, nudging out by the hundreds through ceilings of soil and ashy debris. Hours loose as scree, firming up in tender grips. Here, a stand of charred oaks unwraps its storage of gangly leaves. There, a knot of cones thrown open by heat releases seeds for sun. Currents of brightness are charged from within. Sunlight plucks at the strings of top branches. Up at the crown, Blackened firs begin again their story of vigor, edged with new needles. The irresistible music, tinsel and chime notes, wind sending out word, will nose close to the buds to receive all the answers. The burned and crackling world, not in shambles, not gone to ash and ash alone. Sapsucker, pileated, black-backed woodpeckers, all join the jig of genetic diversity, all build from scratch. What do they crave? Riches, riches hidden in the wide open arches rising from gray. Hey folks, I'm Josh Schlossberg, host of the Green Root Podcast, the official podcast of Eco-Integrity Alliance, eco-integrityalliance.org where we're on a quest to uncover the roots of the modern ecological crisis. For this episode, our guest is Maya Kosla. Did I say that right? Yes. Great. Maya is a biologist and writer focusing on forest biodiversity, post-fire forests, and fire-safe practices for communities. As Sonoma County Poet Laureate, she brought Sonoma's communities together to heal through gatherings, field walks, and shared writing after the recent wildfires. Maya's books include All the Fires of Wind and Light, Keelbone, and Web of Water, Life in Redwood Creek, amongst other writings. Uh, we'll be talking this episode a bit about the intersection between science poetry, environmental advocacy, particularly as it pertains to wildfire and forest, which is the campaign Eco-Integrity Alliance is focusing on right now. So yeah, welcome to the Green Room Podcast, Maya. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, well, I'm really glad you're here. And uh, I think I had seen your stuff floating around over the years. However, it was a recent article in Counterpunch that Kind of brought it all home to be written by Doug Bevington, talking about how basically you're combining these, I guess you would call it, you know, the, the logical, rational, hard science world of biology and ecology, and then the world of poetry and fiction and art, something that I'm actually very involved in as well. So, and then you focus that around other lots of different topics, but wildfire forest. So I guess uh, which came first for you, the science or the poetry? Oh, definitely the poetry. And I was writing when I was eleven. <laughs> Excellent. And what sort of stuff did you start writing? 
Was it about nature or not necessarily? A lot of it was. It was just a lot of silly rhyming things. Um, yeah, but it actually, yes, a lot of it was centered um, in nature because at that time I was in Bhutan. Uh, my dad was posted there as ambassador. So, um, yeah, so, and we were completely surrounded. We had leopards and bears outside in the gardens at night, so. And then, so when did the science take root? Because that is a bit of a switch. It, it seems to be, not always, but a lot of people, they choose one path and not really the other. They're either really into poetry and it's like, you know, it's just about feeling and ideas and I don't care so much about this science or people are like, no, this is the, this is the data and the rest of it is, is poppycock. <laughs> yeah, so the science came a lot later in college actually. So that's, once I got rooted in the science in college, I stuck with it. Uh, but, you know, poetry was always trickling in. In fact, I, I never really gave it up. Maybe I tried to, I had to set it aside for my thesis, both my master's thesis, but um, yeah, but I pretty much, as soon as that was over, it was always that relief of, oh my gosh, the muse is back, I can write again. So those two threads, they coexisted, but did they intertwine? right away or it was at what point in your life where you started to bring the poetry and the science together? I would say consciously with the first book, Keelbone, um, because there was some, there's a lot of surveys in there, a little salmon surveys and actually one, the, my very first burn fire, a burn forest assessment, which was in the vision fire and point raised many, many years ago in the nineties. So um, yeah, so there's, there's several poems in there that, that are very much rooted in surveys uh, in the field. Very cool. And keelbone, what does that refer to? It's the sort of V-shaped bone in the bird that's an indicator to vets, you know, if a wild bird is rescued, if you can feel the keelbone at the chest, chances are it's not going to survive because it's burned up too much fat already. Oh, very interesting. Oh, that's a fascinating concept. Yeah. So what, what a lot of us say activists see, and so you're, you know, you've been advocate, you've been scientist, you've been artist, you've been all the above. Um, I've been advocate, I've been you know, journalist who is a science writer, and I've been artist. But one of the, one of the topics that keeps cropping up is is the scientist's role or their lack of role in communicating it to the public. You know, so some scientists are like, I put out my studies, that's it. I'm not gonna wade into this. I'm not a politician here. I'm not going to corrupt my science. Others try to actually engage and say, well, unless this is implemented, I'm just screaming into a hole. So, you know, uh, Chad Hansen with John Muir Project, he's somebody who does straight up legitimate peer-reviewed science in the field and he also communicates well here's the stuff here are the studies um this should be put into place and uh and then there are some scientists who maybe try to communicate it but aren't great at that because it's a different skill so what's your take on that the role of the scientist in that um you know, I, I do think with a fast moving field like the wildfire sciences and there's some so many developments starting with Montana, you know, 
Dr. Richard Hutto, really. That was the, that was the uh, Yosemite, uh, excuse me, the Yellowstone fire was the 89, 88. Um, it was sort of the beginning of, you know, that 20 year study was just, I mean, it's, cla it's classic. It just, everybody builds on that phenomenal study. And of course he takes the word on the road as a scientist, leads field walks and is extremely articulate, writes, um, comments on um, salvage logging project, etc. Um, you know, he's very visible. If you, if you look him up, Disturbance, I think, features him, this beautiful film about fire up, up, um, mostly based in the Montana, uh, Wyoming area. And so, you know, and the problem also, well, I don't, <laughs> I can't say it's a problem. Uh, I think I personally think it's a problem, which is that the the fire science is being flooded in terms of media attention with the extractionist side, what I call the extractionist side. So um, the minute a paper will come out, all the forests are dying, that'll go straight into SAC B or uh, the Chronicle or something. And you won't have that two-sided approach. So what'll happen is if Chad Hansen or um, Derek Lee, Monica Bond, Richard Hutto, any of these very well-known, um, very well-published people uh, put the word out, then they're saw, it's seen as, wow, they're putting the word out. I mean, they're contacting the media. Nobody realizes how much media attention is, um, is given to the extraction side of things, the folks who are being paid by the industries and, and the agencies who are very much tied in with the industries. Yeah, well, I noticed that, <laughs> and I've noticed it for quite some time. And um, I, I did journal. I decided to do for myself. I started as just a pure advocate, activist, saying, "Well, this is what I think. This is what's important," you know, and based on the science. And then I started doing more what's called advocacy journalism, which is it's legitimate journalism. You're taking um, scientific information, or whatever, but maybe you're just doing one sided the way basically media is doing unintentionally maybe for a lot of the industry stuff. Then over time, I decided, you know, I'm going to get all sides of the story here. I'm going to make sure that there is balance, utilizing perhaps my own bias just to even it out and to try as best I can to have balance. Of course, we all have bias, um, but I realized that, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky in terms of editors and publishers, really the information they want. And people on the podcast have heard me uh, rant about why I think that is. So I'm not gonna get into that, but um, yeah, which is why I recently started up something called Environmental Media Accountability Report, where what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at articles that are out there on a given topic. So wildfire right now, and we're gonna rate it according to you know balance, bias, et cetera, just so there's like a little bit of accountability. But in the meantime, yeah, we all have to get better maybe at communicating to journalists and also to the public. So that kind of brings us into what, what do you think that art communicates to people that say science alone or journalism or even advocacy does not? Um, so I think that Art sort of has its own statement outside of time. You can, by the way, just five minutes ago, uh, I saw from uh, Doug Bevington that the the Young Museum is featuring 
uh, Ansel Adams and Laura McPhee exhibition on uh, burnt forests. Um, so it's it's really beautiful and interesting because you know you've got this um, you know this picture that no one sees because they assume it's it's a garbage area. You have the world at your feet. You're for the most part you're alone other than during the hunting season when hunters are wise enough to know this is where you're going to get the good stuff. So um, if it's not hunting season, you, you just have the world at your feet in these gorgeous places. And it looks like, uh, like Laura McPhee, Ashwini Pat, she's more into the sculpture, ceramic sculpture, um, but she's interpreted burnt forests in her own way. Uh, apparently Ansel Adams too, I did, did not know that. But, um, and so from my standpoint, it's this, this assimilation of just pure beauty and functionality, which are very much married in, in the wild world of uh, regenerating ecosystems that can make this tremendous comeback where they left undisturbed or where they have been undisturbed in the past when I mean logging, they haven't been logged in the very recent past. Um, and then here you are with this body of uh, emotional information and it's sort of interpreted on the page because it just flows. I mean, that's from my standpoint on the page and some people will be on the screen. Um, and in some cases I've tried that too, or in Ashwini's case, it's it's a, a body of work that's just interpreting this landscape and the riches of the landscape. The fact that it's it's not the end, it's a beginning, my goodness. You know, so it's it's sort of this meld of discovery and intense, there's just so much life coming at you. There's so many sounds. There's a huge amount of bird diversity. You can, you know, like if you're listening to close to a nest, after a while, you almost have to have earplugs. You know, it's just, it's, it's this astounding amount of information. And um, I forget the name of, there's a, there's a sound person who's done sort of melded the art and the sound graphics. And he's got so many sound files. I'll send that over to you later. Um, anyway, so it's just, uh, it's a statement that stands outside of time. It's just gonna last. It's, it's something that's, it can be informed by the sciences, but it's removed. It's just has its own life. It's its, its own um, sort of journey. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you make some really excellent points about, I mean, the beauty of burn force and communicating that to a public that has been, you know, almost kind of brainwashed by industry. They have a reason to not like burn force because that can cut in on their profit margin. And also then they can exploit that to log media, which I, I don't think most journalists are like, ah, you know, we're getting like payouts. I think they're just they're not super well-informed, they're very busy, they have a limited understanding, and they like sensationalism. So the ravaged landscape, you know, the destruction, catastrophic, all that stuff, that makes a more interesting article than, eh, nature's just doing its thing, you know? That's not a story in today's journalism, although it should be. And I also think that Yes, to the untrained eye, 
the lack of greenery may be seen as a negative thing. And, you know, not to get too deep here, but I've talked about this before in the podcast, what I actually think the root of ecological crisis is, I think it's humanity's fear of death, denial and fear of death. So we got to consume, we got to accumulate, we got to anything about not thinking about that. We got to, you know, create more versions of our DNA. So it in theory lives forever, even though it will not. And so I think maybe that carries over into fear of death of the forest. The areas change, ew, an ugly, dirty, dead tree, there's soot. But those of us know who have actually spent time in burnt forest, they can be some of the most beautiful areas that even right when they've been killed and nothing has come back, there is a stark, austere beauty to it, a simplicity. It's nature doing its thing. And the last thing I'll say on, on this mini rant is industry, I've noticed in, so we've been getting a little bit of media attention to calling out in Colorado here, the wildfire risk reduction logging, so-called, you know, cutting before anything burns to save the forest and humanity miles away, which is based on almost no science, or at least based on science that omits anything that debunks its narrative. And what industry keeps saying about us is like, oh, you hippies and your aesthetics, you just don't like what it looks like the log forest. And it's like, no, it's, well, yes, true, because that does mirror its uh, lack of ecological integrity when you make all these right angles in a forest. But it's really, ironically, it's industry and these agencies that they are trying to recreate some Disney-fied park-like forest that only existed in patches. And they're the ones obsessed with the aesthetics and then trying to be like, look at how ugly it is when a tree burns. So classic projection <laughs> in terms of psychology. Yeah, that's one side of it. <clears throat> Just going back uh, for a second to the... Um to the writings, uh, to the um, journalist side, um, I think sometimes um, there are journalists who are really, really well-meaning and then there are senior editors and managers. Sure. Um, and so you know, I had one experience like that with a really well-meaning journalists and I could tell they were from CNN. They were just super, super good people, solid on the ground. They, they really got it. But when the slant that they gave the story was, um, and this was a Yosemite story because their Yosemite has some clear cuts in them, right, in it right now for the first time ever mm -hmm. as a park. <clears throat> and um, so we were visiting the, one of, you know, some of the clear cuts and the story slant was, you know, to make the roads fire safe. They're trying to do all this cutting and here are these people objecting. Whereas where we had gone on foot, was very far off the main road, which would have been, which is an, you know, obviously an evacuation route in the case of a fire. We'd gone so far out toward this grove of uh, giant sequoias and they had taken photos of the cuts, but that was not the focus of the story. You know, even though we had all gone there together and, um, and the, other, the other matter was that none of these uh, cuts are actually ever going to um, 
I mean, I think some poetry needs to be written about it. And I've been really experimenting with this because it's tricky to pack too much information into a poem it just it just falls apart language is so delicate it's like this little net and you put too much weight on it just like runs holes through it so but it's really interesting because the cuts are the places which burn the cuts and the you know the selective thinning places mile after mile i've seen the high severity fires you know hit in those places and you can see Here's this massive tree that was taken out long before the fire because of the shape of the stump. It's all burned, reburned, or it's it's burned into a shape, but you can tell it was a stump before the fire. And and then in the backdrop, you see these little you know, sort of matchsticks, and, and you know that the area was commercial thinned with all the the focus being on the largest trees removed and these little teenager trees are left and they burn to a crisp in the fire and that is where some of the highest high severity fires are but of course that's being studiously ignored because then very quick you have to sort of go in at that small window of time after the fire before the cuts before the clear cuts and then you can you can really take that documentation um but if if you miss that, it's a clear cut. Now you don't know what happened. You don't know what the story is, but you can really see the story right after the fire. And so I'm just trying to work that into some writing right now. Yeah, yeah. That, these are all really important points. And you know, our listeners here have heard all that many, many times. We know that, right? The journalists sort of kind of do, and, and it's hard for them to make sense of it or whatever. But yeah, I think you laid that out 100% accurately. And I guess you know, leaving the journalism piece aside, because that is something that we're trying to work on from different angles. Um, yeah, including this in some of the message in the art to get to across to people. But like you say, it's it, it's a delicate thing. So folks may or may not know, I also write fiction. I write horror fiction and I call it biological horror. And some of, and increasingly more of it is what I would call eco horror. And, you know, I don't want to just beat people over the head, per se, with a message. I want to explore all angles of it, even the opposite side. Like, I want to do kind of a form of almost balanced journalism in my fiction, because that's what makes the most interesting fiction. Um, but, you know, I do have a perspective. And so I guess um, my question for you would be, yeah, how do you balance that the desire to incorporate a message which may be underlying and behind the push to create the art and then at the same time not wanting to like all right i've got to get 19 points in here and then i've got to like really make sure people understand this is the right way to think you know how do you do that well in essays it's fine it's easy because you can sort of ease it you know there's so many it's a, you've got that length and you've got the body of information and there's a flow to the language and you can always say well god i've got to insert this thinning piece pre-fire thinning piece here because it's such a stark thing and it's informing the rest of the chapter in poetry it's a little more tricky because um poetry is just in my view so delicate um so I, I would say I could not possibly include more than maybe three in a poem and they have to come off as, as really, you know, some of them have to be subtle and then it's gonna be that explanation, maybe the epigraph or something or, or the notes, the glossary at the end. 
uh, so the poem sort of has to stand as a body of work itself. And um, I mean, in all the fires of wind and in light, I, I talk about mourning and and M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, you know, because there is a sense of mourning. Actually, I did feel that myself in my very first burn forest was the American fire. It was 2014. We walked into it. It burned in 2013. And exactly what you were saying about ashes and stark, you know, snags and some of the fallen trees. And I just thought, what, where, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, and why are we here? It, it was all these gut level questions, even though there was a big field group and a bunch of us were out led by, you know, Chad Hansen and Tanya Chi on a blackback woodpecker survey, the very first um, sort of survey. And then a blackback woodpecker shows up and disappears. And you realize, no, it didn't disappear. It's right there. It just camoed. I mean, it just sort of blended in as soon as it landed. And there's just this wake up call. And next thing you know, then you start opening your eyes and then somebody says, well, that tree is actually alive. You can see it's leafing out and you're, and you're like, oh my gosh. And there's this scene in Elemental that I just saw last night, this, this new fire film with, by Trip Jennings, Balanced Media and produced by Ralph Bloomer. It's on the road right now. I'm hoping you, you'll be able to see it in Colorado. Um, and, you know, Bev Law has this 20, 30 year, you know, plots that she, she's got these towers and she's measuring carbon dioxide and uptake. And, and then she comes back to these, this 90 year old forest that burn. And right after the burn, there's a little bit of an aerial right there, right? Like, you know, a few, maybe a few months after the burn, you can see that the green is coming back in all you know, not all, I would say 50% of the charred, really, really heavily charred trees, if you look all the way up, it, they're green at the top, and then it becomes a clear cut. And so I caught that because it was actually, I've seen burn, uh, Elemental a couple of times, um, and I was a panelist, so I was just sneaking in for, uh, you know, before the panel session started, and I was like, wait a minute, those are live trees that they cut. You know, that was part of the salvage logging unit because no one's going to look all the way up as a bulldozer is going to look straight ahead. You know, the, uh, or the loggers are going to look just like, oh, charred tree, cut, charred tree, cut, you know. So, so, so interesting. Um, yeah, so that kind of information, it, it can't get packed in too much, but it's just like, just that image. Oh, wow, that's, that's alive. Okay, cool. And then you keep going with the story, you know. Right. Yeah, with poetry... Yeah, the feeling, the imagery. I used to write poetry. I started with poetry in high school, writing some, yeah, pretty pretty bad stuff like mock Edgar Allan Poe kind of stuff, and um, and then I turned more into songwriting, and that's that's a little different because you count on the music too, and and you don't need to incorporate as much. It's more lyrical than uh, getting really mining the imagery. You don't have to do that as much in, in songwriting. In fact, you don't want to put too much into the song, you know, whatever. But um, fiction that I've been writing, I can have more leeway. So that's, you can be a bit more clumsy in fiction, particularly because you can go back with poetry. Yeah, it's like, you got to incorporate that magic in those phrases, in the in the imagery. It's a lot harder to cut and paste and reinsert new things in it and I'll just use this to to pitch my or uh my future book that's coming out from uh, Manus Heart Press in this summer it's called Charwood it's actually about 
it's a horror eco horror that is about wildfire and forests and biomass which i think is the first time anyone bothered to do that and probably for good reason no one has attempted it um but what what the story is and and just to kind of talk on the topic of combination of art and the science or whatever is the story has to stand on its own. So for me, the, the horror, dark, creepy folk horror story, it's all about, you gotta have a remote location. You gotta have weird practices, you know, like the townsfolk are a little bit off that cliche, but that's folk horror. And then, you know, something building over time usually occurs in nature and then there's some big event. So you gotta have those elements. And then I kind of crafted a story first and I wanted to make sure to get all the pieces of the biomass stuff. So I basically have a, she's a well-meaning new climate activist who gets invited to some climate action bonfire. And she thinks it's going to be all about solar panels. And instead they, they cut forests to burn for biomass energy. And she's like, that seems a little weird, but I don't know. That's all right. They say this is renewable energy. So over time she starts she, she, she gets hired on by them. I'm not gonna explain why there's like a blackmailing horror thing going on there. And then she, over time is like, you know, this doesn't really seem ecologically viable, but that's not even the main point in my story. The main point of the story is that the reason they're burning trees is a far darker reason. So then I go into pure horror story, but I really try to get the whole perspective and like coming in from somebody who is like, oh, okay, this makes sense, which is, you know, how your average individual is, and then starting to peel away the layers. So, so I, I tried to do, you know, like a steel man as opposed to a straw man, like, you know, straw man is you, you have the other side and you deliberately make the argument stupid. I didn't do that. I deliberately put the strongest arguments that industry and agency has for cutting forests and the wildfire nonsense or whatever. And then she starts seeing the different pieces. So I don't know if I'm successfully accomplished that we'll see what happens, but my allegiance most of all was really to the story. And I do hope I also got the ecological point across, but not just in a like school marmish way. We'll see. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm uh, biomass energy um, extraction is my latest focus because it's such an indiscriminate removal. In the past with salvage logging, you know, there was this eh, size quality, you know, that kind of thing and some leave in place, but not now. Now it's it's all scrape it to the bone and get it all out of there. You know, that's what's happening. Yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, my book, I, I don't know how much that will accomplish, but you know, doing more art. So poetry, maybe it's film, maybe it's music, maybe it's fiction. The, the points that we've been trying to communicate for many, many years, I think are slowly catching on with the science and whatnot. But, but what I learned about being an activist was, okay, the people who agree with me are, will pat me on the back and everyone else just kind of ignores me or hates me. And then with journalism, I feel like I had a little more opportunity to reach a broader audience in that, say they would pick up the Boulder Weekly anyway. 
you know, they're not, you know, obviously Boulder Weekly would be a more a left-leaning kind of publication, but, but still it would reach a broader audience. But I also noticed still that the people who cared about the article are the people who already agreed with it. I, I think it's very rarely that people change their minds that way. They have to feel it. But in, in art, you feel it or you live through the eyes of a character I think books like The Given Tree that I read as a kid, where it's a it's a little kid and there's you know an anthropomorphic tree basically that is giving itself to this boy, and you just feel that the joy of the the tree's gift and then kind of the despair at the end when the tree has given everything it has and. I think that's going to be more powerful than, you know, nothing against scientists, activists, or journalists. It's going to be a million times more powerful than any of that information. Yeah, I mean, and again, nothing against, um, well, it's, I would say when someone opens their eyes, they have a responsibility to keep them open. It doesn't matter whether they're a scientist or a journalist or an artist. And obviously you're, you, you've had your eyes open for a long time on this stuff. I think that one of the most disturbing trends that I'm seeing that I can't seem to interpret into art and I'm struggling with it is the lack of citation. So there's a selective group with the body of work that's informed by industrial interests and talking constantly about extraction, regardless of the beautiful, some of them are, high quality data, et cetera. But the conclusions are always going to be extraction related. We've got to get more out of the forest. It's over overcrowded. We've got to thin them out. And then there's another, of course, group with the independent scientists who are, or someone who's sitting in the middle even, like Max Moritz, who just recently put together a press about the, um, in a publication about the biodiversity of forests after fire. You got these key publications, 20 years of study by Monica, more than 20 years of study by Monica Bond, Derek Lee, who's a professor um, in a university right now. You've got Chad Hansen's work, William Baker, who's professor emeritus. I mean, we're not talking about a group of people without institutional backing, but they're not being cited in, no. a, in a basic paper about biodiversity of post-fire forests. So in other words, you know, what is happening where the industry based or funded scientists are then just sort of saying, is this, is this because, oh, in, you know, interpreted in, in the law, it, if, if they don't cite it, and if they, they deny that that body of science exists, then they can defend that better, their perspective better in a court of law. I, I can't understand it, but it's something that I think it's a, it's a new thing that's happening let's say maybe five to 10 years old. Um, and I think, you know, the only time you'll see everything discussed is when they take other people's work out of context and, and sort of try to break it down. But sort of, to me, I, I, I'm trying, I'm just grappling with that because how do you do, you can't go that far into some, you know, analyzing this, very dangerous trend where you know they're essentially forcing people to keep their eyes closed yeah well that that is a tough thing to tackle in general much less through art i mean what yeah i mean that latest study that came out from baker williams and hansen and della sala 
which basically, I think that's one of the biggest bombshells. We've been putting out press releases about it. I've gotten, well, actually there is one local Boulder Weekly here is supposed to do an article on that. But um, not only did the studies, the agency studies funded by USDA Forest Service and all a bunch of logging entities leave out the information about these other studies that debunk their narrative, namely the idea that prior to fire suppression, all Western forests were park-like Disney forests and you know, not never dense and pretty much only low severity fire. The data shows otherwise. So not only did they leave that information out, oops, they knew it damn well because some of their co-authors even had that in their own studies and that's just left out. So it's, I, I think at this point, it's, it's clearly intentional. I mean, I don't think it's a mystery as to why it's being done, but I, I think it's the classic in-group, out-group and the independent scientists are not in the in-group and their stuff doesn't count. I mean, right? Isn't that the way they look at it? Which of course, the only science that is really legitimate is the independent science because it doesn't have any strings attached. Yeah, and that's what, you know, I mean, media needs to understand that there's there's two bodies of information that are essentially not talking to each other. We can make them talk to each other in film. I have, and I am doing that. But, uh, you know, they essentially didn't, well, actually, I, that's a mistake. Uh, one body of science, like the independents, are talking about all the science there is. Sure. And then the the industry dependent people, the the agency industry complex dependent uh, scientists are denying. You know, they're just sort of sh putting it on the shelf as, or maybe not even that, not even pretending it doesn't exist. So that's really in the meaty discussions, they just shelf. You know, just like sort of deny that whole body of information, whereas the other group doesn't deny any information at all. It just integrates everything together, which is what how it's supposed to be. Um, sort of. I mean, what happens to you when you we tackle when you try to tackle some of the big presses? They just say, "Oh, we can't handle that." They don't even respond. Oh. Yeah, no, they don't. They, they don't even respond. Why? Why would they? Yeah, I mean, it, it's and and my insight as a journalist, you know, going back to all that, I I played in the journalism field for real. Like I I became everyone has bias. I'm like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna do these articles better than these other journalists in terms of going deeper on the side that I actually think is wrong and, you know, double checking that. I, I did that for years and years. And um, I, I found, I ran up against some headwinds and other ways that I'm not going to get into. I've got into that in other, uh, um, the other podcast, but um, yeah, they just, it's not enough on their radar and, and they don't read the studies. They've admitted this to me. So my, here's the thing, not to toot my own horn, because I don't actually think I'm, I'm that great, but I won a lot of awards as during my brief time of just, just focusing on journalism. And why? Because I read studies and took longer to write the articles. That's it. That's the only difference between me and these other journalists. It wasn't that they weren't capable of it. I mean, they were trying to knock off like seven articles in a day, whereas I would like write one article a week and really go in depth which was also part of my demise as a journalist, because it's like, you know, that, that's pretty obvious there. You got to churn it out and churn it out. But no, they admitted to me recently, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to read the study. It's like, well, 
read the conclusion like it's a paragraph, if, you know, or read the abstract there. Like, well, I just want to hear. So I've been quoted recently as an activist in some articles as so Josh Schlossberg, some guy thinks that the forest used to be dense. I'm like, I don't think that. Like, I'm just communicating the science. Like, my opinion on this, you know, you can have my opinion about like, oh, I feel like it's a bummer or whatever to, to cut down beautiful forests. But I was like, please don't quote me as the source of the science because I'm not a credible source other than an interpreter of the science. They didn't do that on purpose. They're just, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I found that the two, the two classes of journalists that have the most hope are the new journalists who have yet to become completely brainwashed so they're like, oh, yeah, that does seem a little weird that they're cutting down the biggest trees when they said that they would protect those. And then the veteran grizzled journalists who don't give a shit if industry doesn't like them or is like, you know, and tells their editor, we're going to run this through. We've gone over this before. They'll also write a good article. It's the ones in the middle. They're a bit, they, they, they think they know stuff but they don't, <laughs> and they're very, um, you know, beholden to whatever the status quo is. So that's what I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. I met some Berkeley um, photographer filmmakers very recently, a couple weekends ago. They're um, they're still going to college, and I was stunned because I, you know, sort of said, "Hey, so you guys are doing sort of um, invasive pig documentation here? It was in Pinnacles." And you're most welcome to check out some of the burn forest work. And I've, I've been busy filming, doing some of that uh, with primarily remote cameras for the for the mammals right now. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, you know, I would love to follow up with you because I'm really interested in all the cleanup they're doing. But I said, I said, cleanup. <laughs> what are you he's like yeah but you know there's fuels reduction projects and then there's cleanup and I said well both of them are different types of clear cuts you know that right um and and I, I was just explaining I said you know whatever side you you've been exposed to is one side of things and if you walk into forests you're gonna see a whole nother side because if once you clean up a forest you I find with camera stuff that nothing comes there anymore. I mean, they just they just pass through, they whip through, or they just turn back, um, go where where there's cover, where all the layers are available to them for hiding, for viewing, for hunting. You know, it's so it's not just William Baker at all think that there was variability in forests. Yes, some were open and park-like, some were highly dense, surprise, surprise. You know, you don't have one size fits all in nature, but also the animals themselves are answering that question by either being there or not. The blackbacks, the, you know, Northern goshawk will select, I've, I've gone through three goshawk nests. I know that's not a lot, but everything I see and everything I hear about it's got to be a certain amount of density, a little view in the front, sort of a platform, and that nest creates strategically two thirds of the way up the tree. And, you know, there's some density, there's some undergrowth, there's this feeling of being in some kind of a little chamber, a forest chamber with the, you know, burn right next door, actually, 
um, not not after it was clear cut. It got that one got clear cut, and she didn't return. I mean, uh, it was a sort of a lightly burned section right next to um, where she was hunting, and the male too, um, for their nest, um, which was high severity burn area. But of course, that's all gone now, and they haven't come back. So you know, it's just they're the answers. They're answering the question just as much as you know, the scientists with all the data are answering the questions. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really important. Um, just to sort of uh, wind things down here. It's like, so photographs and, and film, that's is not as much in my realm. I guess I'm less of a visual person or, or whatever. Um, but obviously you show people photographs of things it can communicate in different ways. I think it's all it's all needed. We need the journalism, we need the science, we need the activism, we need poetry, we need fiction, we need music, we need photography and film, we need all of it. Um, so I, I don't think one is necessarily more important, but I think there's a lot less of say the, the poetry element that that is that that feeling. And then I think photos can also emit that and particularly if you have a, a film with video and music, you're kind of getting all of the above and then you can even insert some poetry. But there's a phrase I heard the other day that I think is pretty darn accurate. And I'm curious what you think about it and maybe how it applies to art is, so a lot of people are just have that knee jerk, burn force, bad mess, clean it up, dead, whatever the heck. So they haven't really been reasoned into that. They haven't really like, logically like it's just sort of a feeling or kind of a fear thing so the the quote that i heard was paraphrasing you can't reason people out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into so in that case logical argument ain't gonna cut it but do you think that maybe art in whatever its form might be the way to sort of short circuit that for people like, oh, what do you think? I do. I am confident that art is one of the most powerful ways to sort of reframe that kind of thinking so that, because you're dropping fear out of it. That framing that you talked about where they, they, they went into that belief system and can't get their way out of it. That's, it seems to me that's fear-based. It's definitely fear-mongering in the media, but it is fear-based. So, you know, art tends to just like sort of drop all those other layers and then you just face the art. It's just that pure art, that moment. Yes, indeed. And I do think that there is hope in that in time, people are going to see this stuff. Like as there is more, unfortunately, I think it has to get a lot worse before it gets better. Like here, they're clear cutting and cutting down 130-year-old trees in Colorado, which, you know, that's, that's kind of a big deal in Colorado for this stuff. It, in some of the most popular parks in, well, not just the state, but in, in the country, because this is a pretty populated area here, and everyone loves to hike here. So I think the more that people see, the more they're like, whoa, they're doing this everywhere. And then also the more of the fuel reduction stuff that ends up burning or burning hotter anyway, and then going into communities regardless. Uh, I think over time, 
more and more of that evidence is going to show that this stuff isn't the way to go about it. So do you have hope that that in time, time will tell all? <laughs> I do. And I do. Um, I just think, yeah, like your big concern, my big concern is a critical mass, a groundswell of people. And of course, that's where, you know, the other, the extraction side has the edge because they have media control at this point, it looks like. Um, there's got to be other ways and say, for example, like a small poem and, you know, in, in a good big magazine, you know, it, you know, Forrest Gander wrote a poem called um, about the burned forests. I had gone out there with him and his wife, Ashwinipat, and um, it came into the, it appeared in the New Yorker and it looks like sort of doom, a doom and gloom type of poem. I mean, it just, it's a sense of mourning. It's expressing a sense of mourning. At that point, um, well, they they produced a podcast on it. It's a New Yorker podcast on Forrest Gander. And if you look at it, if you listen to it, you hear him say, well, the timber industry is in bed with the Forest Service. And that's why these, these places are not known to be rich, beautiful places. They're just getting clear cut left, right and center. And he actually says that. You know, so the poem doesn't say it, but when he explains it in the podcast, it's it's really clear. So, you know, we're inching along, and I think, yeah, I think the art is the hope. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Well, thank you, Maya, for taking the time to talk to us and come on the podcast and for all your work. Where can folks find your work, whether it's science, film, poetry? What's the best way for people to to see the stuff that you're putting out into the world? Oh, I mean, I do have several um, publicly available small videos, shorts that are being built into something bigger on Vimeo, which is uh, like the word video with an M instead of the D, Vimeo. And, um, and I have a website, mayacosla.com. So. Great. Well, folks, you definitely check that out. Yeah, you're definitely at the intersection of so many of the the pieces of communication to the world. And so, yeah, I really appreciate all of your efforts. Thanks so much. And I look forward to your new book. I'll look it up. <laughs> For sure. Well, I'll definitely get you a copy of it. Thanks. Thank you.